The following podcast was recorded March 28th at the SAEM New England Regional Meeting. Moderating is Dr. Ross Littower, resident from Yale New Haven, and his guests are Dr. Andrew Taylor, attending from Yale University School of Medicine, and Dr. Elizabeth Schoenfeld, attending from Bay State Medical Center. On the agenda is how Dr. Taylor and Dr. Schoenfeld got into research, next steps, and what we can learn from them. Dr. Littower, take it away. We were talking earlier, and both of you have some interesting paths to how you ended up in the research field, Co. So um, starting with Dr. Schoenfeld, can you tell us how you got here? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I did research in residency and in undergrad, and I really enjoyed research. Um, and uh, I then did an ultrasound fellowship, which I also really enjoyed, but nobody sort of said to me, hey, why don't you go do a, um, a research fellowship? And so I started life as an attending, and I taught ultrasound, and I had my first and my second child, and I realized that I really enjoyed research, but that I needed more training. And so after a few years as an attending at Bay State Medical Center, I had the opportunity to go back and get a master's um, at the Tufts CTSI, um, and that really, I think, jump-started my research career. Right around then, I sort of learned more about grant writing and was able to get an RO3, um, and since that time, I applied for a K award. Um, and so I highly recommend, if you really are interested in research, thinking about advanced training after residency, either as sort of the first thing you do after residency or something that you decide to do later once you've figured out what you think your, your niche might be. Okay, uh, thank you for th- sharing that with us, Dr. Schoenfeld. Uh, Dr. Taylor, do you want to feed sure. in about that? Uh, actually, I have a surprisingly uh, similar type of trajectory. Um, so I went through you know, residency and uh, went through and decided I wanted to do an ultrasound fellowship and did that. And I think similarly um, decided, you know, at that point that if I really wanted to do kind of research um, within either ultrasound or within a related field that I was going to need some additional training, um, Yale has this uh, program that's a master's in health science that can, allows you to get dedicated tra- uh, training in, uh, in research uh, and really has a lot of flexibility uh, in the types of courses that you're taking. And at that time, I was uh, very interested in looking at informatics, uh, so I went back to school, um, you know, 18, 20-year-olds uh, at Yale College uh, and took a lot of classes at that point. Um, and you know, I think from there, once you acquire those skills, I think you can kind of get yourself uh, moving in the right trajectory and moving forward, um, and that's kind of where I, where I went. Uh, and moving forward, kind of where I'll go is um, continuing to do that informatics-related stuff. And what does a research fellowship actually entail? What sort of skills does it give you that you wouldn't otherwise have? To both of you. Well, I only can talk about my research fellowship. I think that there are probably are some varieties, but mine was specifically at a um, CTSI, so a Center for Clinical and Translational Science, um, and uh, a lot of it is just more in-depth things that you touched on in medical school or you touched on as an undergrad, but you didn't necessarily get in a deeper depth in. So two semesters of biostatistics, understanding, really understanding regression analysis, really understanding um, uh, Cox proportional hazards and um, Kaplan-Meier curves and, and figuring out what study design really goes with your research questions and how you can in the most rigorous way answer these questions. Um, But there's also uh, less tangible things that go with the research fellowship, which is the mentorship, 
which is the number of times that you sit down with someone who has been there before you and done it and who says, let me help you find a way that's feasible, um, that will be successful, that will be done well, um, and says, you know, maybe you don't want to go in that direction or maybe you do want to go in this direction. So part of those two years of that fellowship is getting a research project actually done, getting papers written, getting papers published, um, getting into the world of writing grants, learning how to write successful grants. So I think that there's the classes and then there's a lot of other very important parts of it that just come from being in a research world with mentors and colleagues who are doing similar things. So you're saying that my knowledge of paired t-tests is not quite enough? <laughs> it's a great start. <laughs> uh, Andrew, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so you know, I would say definitely it's somewhat dependent upon um, what you're hoping you get out of um, the kind of advanced degree um, and moving forward with those types of things. So I, knowing that I was wanting to do an informatics, kind of uh, take an informatics approach moving forward, uh, and knowing that I had some deficiencies or kind of lack of skills um, with a lot of programming classes and everything else, that's a lot where my focus was, which is why I had to kind of go back uh, to college and take some undergraduate college, uh, college classes um, in that area. But I would agree with the, the environment around um, kind of res research. Uh, it's, you're totally, you know, not dependent, but you totally need that level of support from surrounding mm -hmm. people to show you kind of the way forward and how to write grants and just, you know, in some degree, like kind of aping the behavior of people that have gone before you and been, been successful. So having that mentorship around you um, that's available. And uh, I think that's what kind of moving into a research program or kind of a research track will allow you to be able to do. Great. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned a lot about informatics. So what would you say is the definition of informatics? How is it useful? How is it going to change how we practice medicine moving forward? Yeah, so the, the definition is a little tricky, um, and it probably wouldn't give it justice to, like, give a straight-up definition. I mean, I, you know, I think anything that uh, is in an information uh, form uh, and for, you know, Within medicine, I think most people would clearly associate that with electronic health records, uh, but you know, it's really any type of data um, that you, know, you can manipulate um, and extract information out of. Um, and so, you know, I think I think that's kind of where uh, kind of where the information is sitting uh, and where you know how it intersects with emergency medicine. Um, there's you know, multiple different ways, and it's a very broad field that covers. Um, both doing um, like predictive modeling and data mining on one side of things versus usability testing and user interfaces on the other, uh, and then really everything in between. Um, and so, within the field of uh, within the field of informatics, you really also, in addition to deciding that you want to do informatics, most people need to make a decision about where in that field they're they're going um, within that kind of space. And it. It seems like the um, amount of information that is available is growing almost exponentially. Do you think that will continue to be the case? Do you think this is something that will be sort of essential to practicing emergency medicine in the future? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I think most people now are on electronic health record systems, um, so we have that information that's out there. But then as we move into more digital devices, um, with wearable devices and uh, all of the social media information that's being generated, I think we're going to be confronted with increasing amounts of information. 
uh, and trying to figure out how to leverage that information to improve patient outcomes. I think it's a, a real challenge, and it's not just within emergency medicine, but kind of all in medicine in general. Great, thank you. And Dr. Schoenfeld, could you summarize some of your more recent research for us? Um, maybe we can talk about that some. Uh, sure. So most of my research the last few years has focused on shared decision-making, um, which I think most people understand the concept of. It's when there's two reasonable options in a clinical scenario, and the physician and the patient or the family sit down and discuss the consequences of those options, um, what the, what's available to them, what the consequences are, what the patient's values and preferences are. So the physician brings some knowledge and expertise, and the patient brings their goals and preferences. Um, and so previously I studied when physicians in the ED are using this, why they're not using it in different scenarios, and then most recently we uh, looked at uh, patient's perception in the emergency department in terms of the use of shared decision-making. Um, at this conference, we're actually presenting a hypothetical study about whether or not the use of shared decision-making is uh, protective in a medical legal sense uh, if there's a bad outcome. And the reason that we started to study that um, is twofold, or multiple reasons, is one thing is that physicians sort of mentioned, well, one of the reasons I don't use shared decision-making is I can get sued either way. Whether I discuss the um, decision with the patient or whether I don't, I still may get sued, and therefore I'm just going to do the most conservative thing and order the CAT scan and admit the patient. And so physicians did note that that was um, a barrier to using shared decision-making is their fears of litigation, whether those are founded or not. Um, and then the other thing is that litigation does represent how the patient feels about the encounter to some degree. Um, and shared decision-making is considered really good communication and sort of a marker of good communication. So in that sense, um, and then lastly, I think the other thing is that it has been suggested that shared decision-making could decrease resource utilization. So uh, if the emergency department is ordering more tests than are sort of quote-unquote necessary, maybe by using shared decision-making we could decrease some of those unnecessary tests. Um, but in that case, are we going to miss an appendicitis here and there? So what we did was we randomized uh, sort of survey participants and we gave them three scenarios, and the scenarios all started out the same. Um, you're going to the emergency room because you have abdominal pain. And then three different scenarios. One group gets no shared decision-making, one group gets a brief shared decision-making, and one group gets a more thorough shared decision-making. Um, and that's literally just the transcript of a conversation. And then the same outcome. In each of the three scenarios, they decide not to get a CT scan. They go home, they come back in a day, um, and they have ruptured appendicitis. And then the surgeon explains to them how... Um, they wouldn't have ruptured appendicitis if it had been picked up earlier. So we make it clear to them that the CT scan that was not ordered could have changed what happened. And then we ask them questions about whose fault is it and whether they would consider contacting a lawyer. And the group that was exposed to shared decision-making, the two groups that were exposed to shared decision-making, were much less likely to say that they would contact a lawyer than the group that wasn't exposed to shared decision-making. And then they go on um, to answer questions about trust, um, and communication and how their care was. And the people, even with the 2020 of hindsight of being able to say, wow, we made the wrong decision, still were less likely to blame the physician for their bad outcome if they had been involved in the decision. Um, and this is just a hypothetical study. Obviously, these people didn't actually go through all this. Um, and people, what people say they're going to do is not exactly what people always do, but I think it gives us a good sense that people want to have this degree of communication, even if in the end the wrong or quote-unquote wrong decision was made, um, to be involved in that decision feels much better than to not be involved in that decision. So that's the, the research that we are um, here at our regional SAM talking about today. 
I think that's uh, really valuable. Uh, and I think there has been some past research that suggested that the number one thing that keeps you from getting sued is if patients like you and if they feel like they were talked to. Uh, so much more so than ordering a ton of tests. And uh, I'm going to kick this one to Dr. Taylor because he, I think, orders maybe the fewest tests of any attending in our emergency departments. So do you feel that you use shared decision-making a lot in your practice? How would this change what you would do going forward? Yeah, so um, I, I definitely use it. Um, I think probably the area that I use it most often uh, is within kind of the chest pain evaluation and workup, um, just because I, I think that there's a lot of complicated steps in that process. I think we have a lot of fear of litigation and other things, and those barriers need to kind of be put out to patients. Um, but in general, I think, you know, I try to talk with patients about most of the steps in the process that I feel like are significant steps. And that usually has to do with either diagnostic uh, imaging or admissions or, you know, dispositions home. Um, and I've gotten varying uh, degrees of kind of um, discussions uh, and um, kind of information back from, from patients. Uh, I think some people have a really hard time of conceptualizing some of the long-term risks, especially with like uh, CTE, cancer risk into the future. Um, but I do think that everybody at least appreciates that they're, you know, receiving the information. Um, and so, you know, I feel like there's definitely room for improvement for even for myself about knowing what information it is to give them uh, and what level their understanding might be and how know, what approach is the most effective in conveying that information to them. I think that's a really valuable point. Uh, certainly the amount of information you're going to give to a Yale professor is different than a Yale undergrad, is different to, you know, a homeless person that comes in in terms of how much they're going to be able to understand. Um, Dr. Schoenfeld, what do you think the next steps are in terms of this particular research? Well, we are, our next step is um, trying to create a decision aid to make these conversations a little bit easier around um, kidney stones and first-time kidney stones in the emergency department because there's a lot of data suggesting that um, ultrasound is as good as CT and is a very reasonable first step, um, but there's a lot of hesitancy to really switch to CT scan. Frankly, uh, emergency physicians don't actually have a lot of incentives to not CT people on their first visit for a kidney stone. Um, the urological guidelines suggest that CT is probably the most appropriate test, um, despite the fact that there's a lot of data that it doesn't really need to be there. And then on top of that, there's this fear of missing something. So um, I think one of our physicians in our study said it very well. You, you don't get a pat on the back for ordering less CTs, at least at our institution and at most CT institutions. Nobody says, oh, good job, your CT rate is lower than other people. But if you miss something, you hear about it the next day. And so there really is no incentive to go easy on advanced imaging. Um, but many of our patients have an incentive, uh, both because sometimes they're ready to leave the ED and they don't want to spend a few more hours there. And um, they want to avoid radiation when they understand what that is. Um, and sometimes they want to avoid the bill. So when I have found, when I have these conversations with people, and it's usually with the ultrasound in my hand, looking at their kidneys, uh, and we talk about whether it makes sense to do a CT scan, there are occasionally reasons why the patient says, I think I need a CT scan. I'm going to, on a cruise next week, and I need to know what's going on with this kidney stone. And you say, fair enough. Um, and then there's a lot of people who say, you know, it is 2 a.m., and I'm feeling a lot better if you're telling me that there's a kidney stone there, and that if it doesn't get better, I should follow up with my doctor. I'm totally fine with that plan, and I really don't need the CT scan. And so um, our research goals of our team currently is to create a decision aid that would make it really easy for doctors to have this conversation with patients, with the end goal both of engaging patients 
and, um, and theoretically decreasing the amount of radiation that we're exposing our patients to. And now is this going to be a decision aid that's on an iPad or some sort of automated device that you can just hand to patients, or how is it going to manifest? So that's a good question. So the, the one that most people know well enough or is this chest pain choice, which they decided that a piece of paper made the most sense. You grab it, but you can pull it up as a PDF on a, uh, on a computer. I think the goals are that you need to keep it simple, um, and uh, particularly if the question that you're answering hopefully is not too complicated. But in the end, I think a lot of people with chest pain choice don't actually pull it up anymore. They have it in their heads and they talk about it. And so the original goal of a decision aid is to sort of standardize the process and to help people. But once people get used to it, they don't necessarily need that sort of piece of paper in their hand. So the development of the decision aid has to do with the stakeholders. And the stakeholders are the patients and the stakeholders are the physicians. So as we develop it, it will be how does this fit into your practice and what is the simplest and easiest to do in the emergency room. And as much as we all really want to use tablets and pull up our phones and that sort of thing, sometimes the easiest thing is a piece of paper that you hand to the patient and then you talk about it together and then they take home to help them answer questions later. Um, but that will be part of the decision-made development process. I think that makes a lot of sense. I've anecdotally found that giving TPA has been a scenario where I've printed out pictures of this many patients in little Absolutely. human figures die, this many have a bad outcome, this many might get some improvements. And I think patients and patient families have definitely responded well to that because they can't quite visualize, I think, what are we really talking about. Yeah, pictograms and icon arrays are probably way better than 13 out of 100 and 2 out of 20 and that sort of thing. Andrew, how do you think the uh, role of the electronic health records and particularly data mining would help with determining shared decision-making both in the setting of lawsuits that are actually happening patient outcomes, or any other uh, results you can think of? I think one of the key areas is in the kind of initial step about assessing the patient's risk. Um, so you know, I think one of the nice things about the chest pain choice trial is they had already developed this um, kind of algorithm to give them a particular risk of um, adverse events going into the future. Um, and that's not true of every, I think, disorder that we have. Um, and so, you know, I can definitely see leveraging uh, the EHR data to provide some estimation of risk. And obviously, you're going to have to tailor that to the, to the patient, um, whether it's in numerical or whether it's in some type of other, you know, low, high-risk uh, setting. But um, there's, you know, there's, there's that aspect of it. And then I think on the back side is really, you know, monitoring or kind of evaluating the effectiveness of different interventions um, and outcomes. And I think as we as we have more of a kind of integrated and tight in uh, data system out there that I think we're going to get better quality of data as far as um, what's happening to patients after they leave the emergency department. The physicians in our original study uh, completely echoed that, that if there was a risk score that existed, it made it much easier for them to use shared decision making because otherwise they were communicating to a patient risks that were real, but they were based on their gestalt. So people really liked it when they had something um, some type of score that helped them talk to the patient about that individual patient. I've plugged your numbers in, and this is what your risk of this is. So I think that there's a huge role for um, for the analytics going forward in that. I think PCARN would be a great example of that when you have children with low-risk head injury or even you know medium-risk head injury. I, I use it every single time I see a child who's bumped their head. Uh, so I think we're running pretty close to low on time. I wanted to get any last-minute thoughts from both of you about 
any advice you would give to anyone more interested in research going forward? Uh, any last-minute thoughts about any of the topics we've discussed? We'll start with uh, Dr. Taylor. Sure. I mean, I, I would say, you know, for people that are considering research, I do think it's now pretty critical that you have some type of research training. Um, I think, you know, from the standpoint of doing an analyses um, and kind of getting that group of mentorship around you. So, you know, I think you need to reach out to somebody that you admire and their either level of success or what they're doing from their research standpoint and start asking questions about you know, what kind of steps do you need to take um, to get you in, into your kind of your career path. Um, and also, I think it's very important to make considerations about the environment, uh, the research environment that you are going to move into. So, and that's about you know, choosing and picking both an institution or program uh, that best kind of suits those needs that you have. Yes, I would echo that. Um, and I would add, uh, so mentorship, 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 you can't do any of this without help. Um, and you need senior mentors, which is sort of, I've talked about 30,000 foot mentors who are looking at your whole career, as well as mentors who are so close to you that you can ask them the questions that you're sort of afraid to ask the 30,000 foot people, um, because maybe you feel like you should already know the answer. Um, and then the other thing I would say is go to meetings and go find collaborators and don't be afraid to walk up to people who are presenting research that interests you and say, how can I help? Um, a, a few years ago, there was a consensus conference on shared decision making. And uh, I only found out about it because a year before, I started telling people my research interests and I hadn't published anything at that time and I didn't have any grants. Um, but as soon as I started talking to people, they said, oh, have you met Eric Hess? Why don't you come meet him and talk to him and be involved in this consensus conference? And so just putting yourself out there, um, talking to anyone who's doing anything interesting to you, um, showing your interest and getting involved, um, and then you will start writing papers together and involving each other on uh, bigger and bigger studies um, because it's a team sport. You can't do it by yourself. All right. Well, thank you both very much for being here. It's a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.